0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. At the bottom of the hour, with so many reports swirling about uh, the world over the impact of Rose reversal on women's health, we hear from a woman who has had firsthand experience, revealing in a New York Times op-ed recently, Catholic convert and author Leah Libresco joins us to talk about her own experience suffering from miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. And why physicians should always see two patients on the operating table when dealing with life in the womb. But before that, the big news, this over 90 Catholics uh, massacred on Pentecost Sunday in Nigeria. We've talked uh, on this show about that area and uh, attacks uh, and persecution of Christians. So we'd like to refocus on that today. We're going to turn to Stephen Rasha of the Religious Freedom Institute. He's a senior fellow for International Religious Freedom and Conflict Regions, and he has extensive experience in Nigeria, where he's a visiting fellow of the KUKA Center, and he's also on the board of the Catholic University of Erbil. Welcome to the show, Stephen.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Great scene.
0: Stephen, we're very happy to have you on the show because um, you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience um, in these troubled spots of the world where Christians are routinely being aggressed and oppressed and persecuted. And the last few days, we've seen an example that is just beyond horrific of this kind of terrible consequences of being a Christian in so many parts of the world. Of course, I am uh, referring to the terrible news out of Nigeria. So, Stephen, tell us about your uh, direct involvement in Nigeria. I know you have boots on the ground there. And uh, please tell us about the KUKA Center, which I found so interesting when you mentioned it to me earlier.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for for asking about that. So I'm with the KUKA Center in uh, in Nigeria. And uh, through that work, been there on uh, multiple extended visits over the last two years, traveling throughout the north, the northwest, the northeast, and the central regions of Nigeria, working closely uh, with the priests and uh, some of the various bishops on what the situation is there. Trying to really figure out what is the proper way to message what is going on there and what is the proper way more importantly to take care of all of the people that are, are being affected by it and especially the uh- displaced, because uh, you have a situation dating back to uh, uh, 2014 and the attacks of Boko Haram up in Borno State in the northeast, and then that has evolved into uh, this violence uh, across the north and central parts of uh, Nigeria over the last uh, several years, primarily from uh, uh, armed uh, Fulani herdsmen, Muslim herdsmen. And uh, this uh, current uh, situation we see now, uh, this awful, awful attack, uh, way down in the south, the eyewitnesses uh, are all pretty clear about this. These gunmen are not unknown. These were armed Fulani Muslims.
0: I haven't wanted to look at any images or even to delve very deeply into the, the details because I find it so horrific and also so close to me. obviously. I was at Mass on Pentecost Sunday, didn't have any expectation of anyone bursting through the door with guns and I, I can't imagine what that must have been like for them, for these families. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what they endured?
1: Well, uh, the death toll is now uh, approaching 90 uh, at the last count uh, that I received uh, from some of uh, our priest contacts there. It's, uh, uh, it seems uh, quite clear that this was in response to a crackdown by the governor in uh, Ondo State to restrict the uh, the grazing movements of uh, cattle. Uh, the cattle. Fulani's are herdsmen and uh, they've been moving their cattle aggressively throughout the country in some ways in uh, provocation although historically they have been there for a long time but not down there in the south. And the, the governor uh, restricted recently their grazing uh, movements and this attacks to be a reprisal for that. Um, there's uh, much uh, thought within the, the Christian leadership and the Christian world that when you see this type of just off-the-scale violence, ostensibly uh, in response for grazing uh, right dispute, that it's really just being used uh, as a pretext, uh, that there's a a deeper uh, religious element to it. They're using the herder-farmer conflict as a pretext to do this. Uh, I think that uh, uh, most people by now can look at this and say, murdering over 80 innocent people at church is something quite different from having a dispute over or herder farmer conflicts
0: so you think the the these people uh, are using this uh, this um, ostensible conflict over land to to hide what uh, just a deep a terrible Enmity of, of the Catholic of the Christian faith, or wanting to take over the country and make it a Muslim
1: country. Perhaps all of the above. What's happened is that uh, the Fulani herdsmen are an old, ancient uh, ethnic group within uh, Western Africa, moving their herds across basically all of the Western African countries for centuries. When they became Muslim some centuries ago, uh, since that time they have engaged in uh, periods of jihad. Uh, That's something that's not entirely new. But what seems new is that in this last decade or so, there's been an element of real radicalization that has come about through through interaction with Boko Haram, with uh, the Islamic State of West Africa. And now these groups uh, are mingling with each other and moving in ways such that at once they are religious radicals, and at the same time, armed bandits taking advantage of anything they can, and at the same time, uh, professing to have their own griefs or grievances. Uh, against the government for what they perceive to be their own marginalization so you have a lot of things happening at the same time uh, at the base of it the christians seem to be the target of choice and it's really difficult to turn away from the idea that uh, the fact that uh, these are christians and the attackers are muslims uh, are the attackers are muslims has uh, has a great deal to do with this
0: is the government of Nigeria able to fight back? Are, there, are their hands tied in some way or do they not have the resources to, to turn back this tide?
1: This is a, one of the biggest problems right now. The current administration, which has about a year left before elections, ha- has really just collapsed in terms of its uh, ability or, uh, or even desire, it seems, to impose uh, internal security on the country. Uh, a lot of this violence Violence has been building uh, over the last uh, several years and uh, it's really unfortunately not a surprise that we saw what happened this past weekend Uh, a culture of impunity against this type of growing violence has absolutely been allowed uh, to develop and the the current government in power has just been increasingly oblivious throwing out uh, statements of dismay after the fact uh, with absolutely no real follow-up on any of it. And there's uh, very little confidence uh, anywhere within Nigeria that the current government is is going to be able to do anything about this.
0: What about pressure from outside? Um, I was very shocked to see very little talk about the Pentecost massacre in our main media outlets. For instance, it's been remarked upon, I'm not the first to notice it, that it didn't make the front page of the New York Times. I mean this this beyond Horrible attack on on families in, that happened in Nigeria.
1: Yeah, there, well, there are a number of things I think going on in that. At the same time, I think at the at the core of this, you know, we've just become such a distracted people with such a limited attention span, mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> in, in in everything around the world. Uh, you look at Ukraine. Where is the news on what's happening uh, in Ukraine? It, mm-hmm. it was twenty twenty four hours a day. For a week and a half, and now it's on page fifty-three, and and, and it happened it happened that quickly. So the situation in Nigeria, it's so far away, it doesn't touch us. It's not really a thing that we need to worry about because it's just so far away from us. I think the other thing, though, that is clearly going on is, and this uh, it comes from much of the West, much of the Western uh, governments, is this uh, desire to frame everything in the context of either climate change or some other uh, Western social justice Priority and a, uh, a real uh, lack of willingness to confront the issue uh, of, of violent Islam, which exists in this world, and uh, you know when you keep denying that that can be an issue in and of itself, then it gets really difficult to to address uh, any narrative on these stories. And you look at it, even where these stories have been uh, have been followed, most of them are saying. Unknown gunmen. Well, they're they're unknown only to the people in the West Mm -hmm. or the government people who don't want to know who they are. Uh, Evidence abounds on the ground now uh, that the uh, the attackers uh in uh, in ondo state uh were fulani muslims it's it's quite clear you can look at the video it's quite clear uh who these who these people were and yet in any of these uh serious publications world leader uh news organizations nobody's done the digging to find that out which they could do in fifteen minutes.
0: So, so you think part of this is that the the it doesn't f- fit into one of our preferred narratives here on the West. The ones that we are the ones that we are like um, pounding drums about, right? Climate change yeah. and gender ideology, uh, etc.
1: One hundred percent. That is a major contributing factor.
0: I, I would guess too that there is a lack of uh, knowledge uh, and there's a lot of confusion about uh, the different groups uh, that are sure. that are aggressing. So you mentioned two, for instance. You mentioned both. Haram and also the Fulani. Who are these people and what do they have in common and what, what don't they have in common?
1: So, as I said before, the, the Fulani are, are an ancient ethnic uh, uh, nomadic herding group, uh, indigenous there to Western Africa, who've been there for a long time. Uh, they were, uh, um, they were uh, they had their own nativist religions until they were converted to Islam, um, but they've been a, a permanent, predominantly Muslim group uh, for many, many centuries now. Boko Haram, on the other uh, other hand, is a relatively recent group uh, and uh, following in the same lines of uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, and in fact... Uh, had a formal affiliation with ISIS for for a period of time. They've since splintered off, but uh, Boko Haram is more of this uh, more recent radical uh, Islamist terrorist uh, group. I mean, Boko Haram means, roughly translated, means against Western education. Hmm. It means no no Western education is is prohibited. Um, It doesn't translate directly, but this is roughly the meaning of it. So it's, it's, it's against everything west now what's happened is that in these last years this last uh, five years especially or so these groups have started mingling with each other um and uh, coordinating in in loose fashions and uh, a lot of the ability of, of the Fulanis to become armed comes from this greater connection to the more uh radical terrorist world uh, that was uh that developed in the middle east and north africa um over these last decades
0: wow so they're being potentiated by the kind of terror uh terrorist groups that that we see operating in other countries yeah,
1: it's really a, a, a toxic brew of uh, of violence. Absolutely.
0: And what are the the tell us about the demographics of Nigeria? How many people in Nigeria um, are Christians? How many Muslim? How many nativist religions?
1: Yeah. So so Ni- Nigeria is the most populist uh, populist. Uh, excuse me. Uh, doesn't strike down we'll start off again (laughs) nigeria is the the most populated country in, in Africa, there are uh, as many as 230, some say even 240 million people there. It's tough to get a, a count um, because of all the violence going on in the country and all of the displacement. It's certainly well above 200 million people. Of those people, uh, it's roughly split down the middle, uh, one half Christian, one half um, Muslim. Mm. The Christians are pri- primarily in the South, Muslims primarily in the north, the the, the native animist uh, uh, religions are really still, quite, uh, at this point, quite small.
0: Oh, that sounds like a recipe for, for much trouble. Half and half, and then the two poles, um, like we've seen in other countries.
1: Well, the thing that's really alarming is that this violence has been mostly uh, in the north. Uh, as I said, uh, Muslims uh, are the the larger population, the majority population in the North. Um, But there is a sizable Christian minority and most of these attacks that have targeted Christians over the last uh, years um, have been there in the north, and that's why this one in in uh, Ondo State is so uh, disturbing. Uh, because uh, you know this is not an isolated rural area where this happened. It, it demonstrates that these herdsmen are able to move in numbers way down into the south and, and uh, perpetrate these horrific attacks uh, in the middle of the daytime. And uh, they've been threatening about this. They've been saying we are in the forests. We are moving around uh we are going to come and get you and 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 so now we see them begin to to make good on those threats it's it's a really dark and frightening time and uh, the local security at us in the, in the States and, and the military really have their work cut out for them now.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Stephen Rash. He's a senior fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute for International Religious Freedom in Conflict Regions. Stephen, I know that you are also an expert in the Middle East, and you wrote a fabulous book called The Disappearing People, The Tragic Fate of Christians in the Middle East. And that's something that we we talk about a lot on this program. I think we we put a lot of attention on our brothers and sisters there. What similarities do you see between these two regions? Are there growing similarities um, and in the way that the, the terrorism is being exacerbated?
1: Well, uh, as I as I spoke about earlier, uh, there was a direct link between ISIS and Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were in communication and. In To some extent, even coordination with each other for a time. So, in terms of this existence of radical Islamic terror, um, that's absolutely uh, a commonality between the two places. And the uh, Christians uh, being uh, the the target of choice is is a commonality as well in the Middle East uh, and Iraq. You also had the Yazidi population, and you had the mix of also. A Shia population these uh, radical um, Islamic terrorist groups that we're talking about in Africa in Nigeria and in uh, I- Iraq were primarily Sunni Muslims um, and uh, so they would attack Shia Muslims as well and Shabak Muslims and you don't really have that in uh, in Nigeria uh, as you did in in and uh, in, in Iraq much of the civil war uh, or the civil violence in Iraq that took place after the U.S. occupation was between uh, the Sunni and the Shia, and uh, with the Christians and the Yazidis, uh, at that point, more of the collateral damage than than anything else. Um, it's in terms of other similarities, the uh, uh, the issue of treatment of this by the West when. ISIS came to power when ISIS began going after uh, the Christians, when they began going after the Yazidis. There was a real hesitancy in the West to call this for what it was, a violent Islamic Islamist uh, group. Instead, they were... Um, uh you know uh violent fundamentalists or violent extremists nobody would would speak the words uh being willing to relate this uh directly to uh islam mm-hmm. and when when you say, have a group calling itself the Islamic State, and the West was really hesitant to to address that, and because of that, it made it really difficult to uh, even try to deal with the situation uh, as it is. And the frustrating thing about that is, it's not that there are not moderate voices. Uh, within Islam, who uh, agree with this? Who, uh, who, who say, "Look, this is a problem of violence within this element of Islam, and we have to we have to acknowledge it and accept it and deal with it, and to pretend it's not there just guarantees it, it will continue." There are some really courageous Muslim leaders. Um, in this world who are, are trying to make a statement on that, but they are not being listened to. And one of the reasons that they're not really being listened to as they should is because we won't even address the problem as being something that exists, and that's absolutely common between the Middle East and Africa.
0: Well, we come to that same uh, question that keeps resurging, right? Is, is the problem with Islam or is the problem within different interpretations of Islam? Is that what's stopping people from going down that road and saying the problem, that we could even decide that from the outside?
1: Well, it could be both things, mm-hmm. but uh, you have to begin with the fact that uh, that the perpetrators of this violence are acting in the name of Islam, mm-hmm. and, and you have to begin with that. If you can't begin with that, and the justifications for persecution and violence that are stemming from that, then you can never get at the problem uh, itself. And, and, and yeah, you know, this is really the the issue. You know, I'm not an Islamic scholar. Uh, I, I I am reasonably expert on seeing what the results have been of of uh, of, of uh, self-professed uh, Islamic violence uh, in the Middle East and Africa and. Uh, you know, we keep dodging around who's really perpetrating this, mm-hmm. and, and for what reason uh, people are really perpetrating this. Again, uh, our fallback seems to be on everything right now that it's related to climate change, and and that that excuse gets gets less and less easy to accept when you look at this type of violence as it happened last Sunday. But as you said, how you make the leap from saying, yes, there's climate change in which people are threatened, to somehow saying, okay, this is a plausible reason for why uh, Fulani Muslims would travel mm-hmm. down from northern Nigeria all the way into the south and attack a church and murder over 80 innocent people and then try to blow up the building. You, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's an argument that that any moral or sane pe- person can make. and And yet... Um, we've set in motion now in the West a paradigm in which climate change is basically driving everything. And I think we we need to do a big reset on that. Not to say that climate change is not a problem. It is clearly a major, major important problem, but it doesn't give a pass for all of these other behaviors. More than one thing can be true at the same Mm -hmm. time. And, and I think we need to get a little bit more sophisticated about that over the last ten years.
0: So let me ask you if if you were running the world, if you were running the west, what what would you recommend from the outside, from from Western countries? what what should what could we do to help this?
1: Well, it's unclear right now. As I said, Nigeria is now in the run-up to uh, uh, new presidential elections. It seems pretty clear that the current president um, has lost control of the country. And so that really, really limits um, what anybody can do in terms of putting pressure on the government. To the extent that the UN or the West could become involved uh, in this further, um, that's a really tenuous path as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the hesitancy of of people to get uh, involved on the ground there—it's uh, a—it's a really really uh, dark. Uh, immediate future that they're looking at. You know, if if uh, a new uh, administration comes in that uh, is able and willing to actually deal with this, it's not that Nigeria doesn't have a military. They have a have a large military that's been very effective in peacekeeping forces uh, uh, around the world. Uh, elsewhere in Africa. So they do have a a military that that knows what to do. It's a question of will and direction on what to do. And and in the uh, current situation where you have a a completely ineffective uh, government leadership, uh, those things are, are quite limited. One thing that could be done Um, is that the level of corruption that exists in Nigeria um, is really uh, monstrous and Mm -hmm. and harms the people. And that money is being stolen. It's being stolen um, primarily by politicians and corrupt businessmen. Uh, Money that was intended uh, to be for the benefit of the people is being taken offshore. It goes to the UK, it goes to the EU, it goes to the US. And when you look and what the world was able to do in terms of shutting down uh, Russian oligarchs when it decided to do something about that, if if the world looked at Nigeria and said, hey, look, this country is about to blow up. If we don't bring it under control, one of the first things we need to do is, is throttle down on all this corruption and, and make these people start paying attention to their own country. A concerted effort by the world could make a difference um, on, on that. But it needs to begin with an admission as to what the problem is. And and we can't even get that far.
0: Well, Stephen, it sounds like one thing we can do, uh, us and our listeners, is at least pray. Pray for the country, for the people, for those who who suffered terribly on Pentecost Sunday and their families. And thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. And thank you for sharing all your your deep knowledge uh, and experience of these areas. And thank you. This is, to learn more about Stephen Rush, please visit religiousfreedominstitute.org.
1: And and thank you, Gracie. And and one thing I, I would like to say, you're absolutely right in terms of prayer and and help uh, for the people uh, there. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, it keeps them uh, in everybody's mind. Uh, but the other thing is to remember that even in the midst of this, the people still have to live. And so there are organizations that are there trying to put into place uh, hospitals, healthcare clinics, uh, schools. Uh, and, and that sort of thing and we can find ways to support them two of the best organizations doing work in Nigeria right now are uh, the uh, the Knights of Columbus and Gate to the church and' both doing great work there.
0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie on EWTN Radio. Thank you for joining us again this week. With so many reports swirling about the world over the impact of Rose reversal on women's health, we hear from a woman who has had first-hand experience, revealing in a New York Times op-ed recently, Catholic convert and author Leah Libresco joins us to talk about her own experience suffering from miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies and why physicians should always see two patients on the operating table when dealing with life in the womb. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thank you so much for having me on. Leah, we wanted to have you on after we we read, I'm sorry, the beautiful piece that you wrote in the New York Times where you write about your ectopic pregnancies and, and what that was like for you. And also what a pro-life uh, uh, vision of, of pregnancy care around ectopic pregnancy is and how it, how it can be made to happen and, and what the differences are between a culture that assumes that a pregnant woman and her child are somehow in a competitive adversarial relationship and one that doesn't see it that way.
2: I appreciate that. You know, it meant so much to me when we found out our baby chameleon was ectopic. I, you know, took the New Jersey transit a few stops to see a doctor who I knew was going to care about our baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what was the biggest comfort to me and what was a really upsetting time. Someone who understood that we were mourning and to whatever extent we might be able to bury our baby, which turned out not to be possible for us, was going to spend his whole time in the OR thinking about two of us there on the table and what he could do to best care for both of us, even if he wasn't going to be able to save my baby's life.
0: And these days, what we're seeing uh, in this post obs stage that we're living in, what we're seeing from the pro-choice side is a real mix up, mixing up of terms and a lot of uh, you know, obfuscation and, and making what they want to scare women about things like ectopic pregnancy. And telling them that that it's 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 them or the baby, you know, and and if they don't, if, if they're in a pro-life state, they're the doctor may choose the baby over them. Why does this make no sense uh, from your own personal experience?
2: Well, I think the sad thing is there's no way to choose the baby in a ectopic pregnancy, you know, even if you want to, and I want to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the baby is implanted somewhere where they can't grow, and so the focus is. On saving the mother by delivering the baby, even though we understand the baby isn't going to survive delivery, just like a mom at you know 21 weeks who has eclampsia might have to take a chance on delivering her baby when she doesn't expect the most likely outcome is her baby will survive because she and the baby can't go on as they are. Um, but I think you know one of the things that happened with the pushback that I received is it really just pointed to how contentious the claims about the moral weight of a child are um, because people were accusing me of having had multiple abortions because I had talked about the fact I've had miscarriages and the claim was, you know, it's all the same thing. If a pregnancy ends, it's all the same as though, you know, whether someone takes the life of a baby or a baby dies is the same thing. I think it really points to why we need to have personal conversations with people about what these claims are and what's incoherent about the claim that the taking of a life is the same thing as caring for a body after death, because that's not something people are going to figure out just through fights over the law, but through conversations with friends.
0: Well, let me ask you, maybe if you agree with this, I, I find that maybe what's what's lacking in people is uh, a philosophical, uh, t- philosophical training so that they can understand the difference that, that the same act committed with different intent becomes a different act. Do you think that people just have lost that level of, because of a lack of education, uh, have lost that level of reasoning where they can distinguish between the purposes of an act and how that affects the act?
2: I think we live in a really utilitarian culture where that's all about outcomes and not about character, intent, and virtue. And that means we've kind of got an atrophied language for talking about why we do what we do, not just what we do. And I also think, you know, Roe is kind of, until... Jobs repealed it, frozen discussions about abortion since so much was off the table legislatively. And that's how you end up with a country that both you know, strongly favored Roe, if you ask about Roe by name, and also strongly favored restrictions on abortion that Roe explicitly prohibits. People just haven't had the opportunity to have conversations about abortion and about abortion law for almost 50 years because mm-hmm. most of those restrictions were off the table. And now people are really going to get the chance to consider afresh what rules make sense, and what you know moral assumptions undergird them.
0: I, I agree with you. I think that a post rural world will be a better world for discussion, for for meeting of minds, for the a back and forth that has been that has been you know muted for so many decades because of Roe.
2: I think it's gonna be a really tumultuous next yes. few years right <laughs> yes. you know, I think we're working our way to a better world but the interim is going to be really marked by I think temptations to fear or despair by people who feel like they're on the losing end and it's our job to show them that we're not pushing for a world with fewer options but a world with better options.
0: You have a blog that's called Other Feminisms um and I follow it, and I and I really like it's a, it's an open discussion uh, that you have. People can write write into you, and, and you respond <coughs> very beautifully. And what I what I like about it is that you present uh, a view of of, femi- of feminism, or I should say of, of the of the feminine. Maybe it's a better <laughs> a better way to say it. Um, that is that is sometimes surprising in its. In, in its depth. Uh, you explore things that are are, are not often explored, uh, of uh, parts of a woman's life that, that we've stopped thinking about because of this mad world that we live in. What do, what do you hope to do with that blog of yours? And, and what are the things that you like to focus on?
2: Well, I think whether people start as pro-life or pro-choice, what every woman knows is that we live in a world that isn't very hospitable to women, that takes a certain view of a male life as the default. And whether it's Things being placed just at the wrong height for women's height, or whether it's the way parental leave ignores the realities of childbirth for a woman's body. We just find that we're always treated as a weird exception to normal life, even though we're half of the human race. And so a lot of my emphasis is on one particularly dangerous assumption about what it means to be human, one that hurts women most, but hurts men too, which is that what it means to be human is to be autonomous, to not depend on anyone and to not have anyone depend on you. And every moment where you do need someone else or someone needs you is this brief passing unnatural thing. Hmm. When in fact, everyone begins their life radically dependent, first in the womb, then as a baby, And then we spend a lot of the rest of our lives depending on others and caring for them. So parenting, friendship, these aren't things we can write off as brief interruptions of normal life. They're the fabric of normal life. But increasingly, our laws and our culture don't make space for that part of being human or being a woman.
0: When I I moved to the United States uh, at the age of 12, one of the things that shocked me, uh, I moved from Latin America, the, one of the things that shocked me about American culture was this um, this this, in, this really insistent um, uh, pushing of of independence. And I remember hearing one time, when I was just a little older than that, somebody saying to their to 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 a little friend of mine, "As soon as you're 18, you're out of here. You're going away to college." And I was shocked beyond measure. <laughs> Nobody had ever suggested to me in my life that they wanted me to leave the home. <laughs> and to me, it seemed. <laughs> You know, I'm like, whoa, wait! Your parents want you to leave? Like, what? <laughs> what kind? So, there is this strain in American life of of, of radical independence. Do you? Th- it's just gone too far. You think, or why? Why have we decided as as Americans that these 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 complicated um, interdependent relationship bonds are more are are more are more obstructing than than liberating?
2: Well, you, know, I think it's um, it's a poor idea that exists from our very founding and i think the legal scholar erica bakiaki has written well about this that we've kind of written from this Lockean view of each individual citizen is the basic unit of society from the beginning of the foundings of our country rather than the family is the basic unit of society Uh, a country is made up of families you know even someone who's lost their parents and isn't married has belonged to a family from the start, mm-hmm. and so our society has to be set up to support family relationships, to support friendships, to acknowledge that we exist in a web of relationships, not as you know naked, soul human beings.
0: Do you do you think that uh, some of the terrible um, things that we see in our society, like violence and, and and random killings and things like that, do you think that's those are cries from people who? who are not living in these nested relationships and, and and complicated webs of relationship that the human being needs to flourish?
2: I think it's very hard to speak about you kind know, of these different tragedies because they are distinct. Um, and a lot of things have to go wrong together for someone to consider picking up a gun and starting sure, a sure. mass shooting. But I think, you know, the one unifying factor is despair, mm-hmm. um, whatever the source of that despair and that a lot of mass shootings are ultimately an attempt at suicide, right? Since many mass shooters sure. take their own lives or expect to be killed by cops. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what leads people to that feeling of despair? And how can we solve it, whether or not people express that despair through the killing of others?
0: But do you think that that despair has some, at least some of its uh, f- foundations in, in the atomization of the individual, the lack of, of relation- relationships?
2: I think that's a part of it, you know. I think just there's a lot of people affected by the lack of relationships and the atomization of society, and only very few consider these horrendous acts of violence. So it's a piece of the story, but there's also other things particular to these individuals.
0: Now, if if, if we see the left or the pro-choice uh, side being so um, violently um, upset about the end of Roe, which really is not is not a huge change, no, in the way people will be living in, in many, many states and why do you is it does that indicate that that this kind of atomization has become even to the point of atomizing a woman away from her child?
2: I think that is a big part of it. You know, that we the assumption is, you know, because these two people are connected, that's a problem. That's the
3: problem. Start yeah.
2: The just thing is for them to be separable. You know, uh, you see that even in the push of like how how can we make it easier for women to go back to work a week after having a baby, two weeks after having a baby, instead of recognizing that's an unrealistic thing to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, both woman and child need each other at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it speaks to just a despair that's unfortunately rooted in you know, reality at the moment, which is you look around at American culture and you see we're not prepared to take care of women and children very often. We don't have the kind of support structure we need. So I think a lot of people who are pro-choice, you know, come at this out of a sense of despair that they just believe, not without reason, that we haven't built a society that's willing to take care of women and children. And if we can't take care of both, they're picking the one they feel they can do the most for. Mm-hmm. And so part of our challenge is to say, you know, even where we fall short, you know, that can't be the end of the story. There has to be something we can do that's better than this. And we can work together to make that despair unnecessary and clearly wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe the, the best thing we can do to support women and children is to bring back the idea of the family and of relationship and the extended family and, the, and stop talking about people as just purely independent beings.
2: Especially the extended family. You know, I think it's so obvious that a baby needs more than just a mother and a father. That's the kind of bare minimum, mm-hmm. including biologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But everyone in need needs more than just one other person to depend on. They need to be part of what Carter's need calls you know, the network of graceful giving and receiving yes. that makes us a society.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's a beautiful phrase. No, I want to go back to something you said about picking a doctor. Driving further on the New Jersey Turnpike, I think you said you felt that it was very important to to have someone taking care of you who felt the same way about your baby as you did. That, that the baby was a valuable human being and a part of your life and would always be a part of your life, even if his life was so short. Is this something that you are you've been able to communicate to others and 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 you find success that that people can see in their medical professional? Someone who shares that kind of uh, feeling about them and their children?
2: It's really varied. It's, it's what I want and it's what I want for everyone. But, you know, I made sure to get on the train to get to see a doctor who I knew would do that. Once um, I've moved to D.C., you know, I've still kind of had to talk to doctors sometimes just when I go over my medical history. And that means I have to talk about my miscarriages. You know, talking to doctors about the way they respond, you know, just going like, oh, well, you've got a baby now. So it all worked out, which um, <laughs> would be an insane way to respond to someone who'd lost their child to SIDS or someone who'd lost a three-year-old. You wouldn't say like, oh, well, here's your baby now. That other baby didn't count. So, you know, I just, it's a, a constant tension that whenever I go into a doctor's office, whenever I know I'll talk about the children we've lost, I don't know how that doctor is going to respond. And unfortunately, frequently it's dismissively. Sometimes it's dismissively, you know, in the in the aim of being helpful, or I think in the same way people respond to grief outside a doctor's office where something terrible has happened and you don't know what to say, so you try and say something cheerier to find a silver lining rather than simply saying, that's sad, I'm really sorry.
0: Why do you feel capable of sharing these these agonizing stories with the public? What, what part of that, why, why do you think you have that ability and that and strength?
2: Well, part of it is because I've been helped so much by other women who chose to share their stories with me. Yeah, you know, the first time my husband and I got pregnant, we had another couple over from church, and they were one of the first people we told because we were just so excited we couldn't not. And the the wife said to, "Oh, you know, we recently had a miscarriage," and she said she felt awful. You know, she went home. She said to her husband, "I said that to them. You know, that's a you everyone knows you don't bring up miscarriage to some." But you know, two weeks later, we lost that baby, Robin. And I knew to call her because mm-hmm. she would told me about her loss. So I think that was a real Holy Spirit moment, even though at the moment she thought she'd made a terrible mistake. I think it's by telling each other about our griefs that we learn who to turn to for support.
0: Well, Leah, thank you so much for sharing your personal journey with with us and with the wider public. And it's really lovely that you share your vulnerability um, because I do think it's helping a lot of people. And it's a very touching piece. Please look it up in The New York Times. And where can the public learn more about you? Tell them how to find your blog and your other work.
2: I think the best place to start is otherfeminisms.substack.com. You can also find all my writing at lealabresco.com.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when the disciples of Jesus will ask him how to enter into the most fundamental consequential conversation of them all, the dialogue with God we call prayer. Lord, teach us to pray, the disciples ask Jesus, at the beginning of this Sunday's Gospel. On its face, it seems like a straightforward enough request. When one understands well the context in which it would have been asked, it would be like Michael Jordan's asking someone to teach him how to dribble a basketball. The Jewish disciples of Jesus already should have been experts on prayer. The whole of what we call the Old Testament was one long instruction on how to pray, Abraham, Moses, Samson, David, Elijah, Esther all teach us by example. The 150 Psalms were a prayer book the Jews said and sang over and again with inspired words. The prophetic books contain many examples of prayer, and the wisdom literature shares the fruit of much prayer and contemplation on the mysteries of God. The history of the Jews in the whole Hebrew Bible was a school of prayer. Yet Jesus' disciples, fully educated in that school, knew that there was something different about Jesus' prayer that they hadn't learned from the rabbis in the synagogues or the Levitical priests in the temple. Jesus' example of prayer, going off to the desert, heading up on a mountain, stealing a corner in a garden, often spending all night, enticed them to ask him to teach them his secret. Implicitly, they knew that the type of prayer to which God was calling them was more than merely making some time for God, or reflecting on the Torah, or putting some sacred words of the Psalms on their lips. So they turned to Jesus to ask Him to teach them this special art, and Jesus didn't let them down. This weekend, we have the privilege to learn from the same Master. We can't exaggerate the importance of prayer in a life that's truly and fully Christian. Saint John Paul II in his 2001 pastoral plan for the church in the third Christian millennium said prayer can't be taken for granted we have to learn to pray as it were learning this art ever anew from the lips of the divine master himself like the first disciples who asked lord teach us to pray John Paul went on to emphasize what happens when we don't learn that art it would be wrong to think, he said, that ordinary Christians can be content with a shallow prayer, unable to fill their whole life. Especially in the face of the many trials today to, to which today's world subjects faith, they would not only be mediocre Christians, but Christians at risk of seeing their faith progressively undermined. Something we see when Catholics drift away from our faith because they often do not find God and enter into intimate existential dialogue with him through the practice of prayer. So St. John Paul II said, it's therefore essential that education and prayer should become in some way, a key point of everything the church does because learning the Trinitarian shape of Christian prayer and living it fully above all in the liturgy, but also in personal experience is the secret of a truly vital Christianity for our faith to become truly alive. We must learn from Christ how to pray to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Basically, our spiritual life will be worth what our prayer is worth. So let's get down to brass tacks. How does Jesus teach us to pray? How do we enter effectively into the consequential conversation in which we exchange not just words or ideas with God, but our very selves? Jesus teaches us this art of prayer in four ways. The first is by his own contagious example. In this Sunday's Gospel, we read that Jesus was praying in a certain place. We know that Jesus was constantly praying, and it was this personal example of prayer that precipitated the disciples' question for him to teach them. By his own witness, Jesus showed how important prayer is. If he who is God prayed so much, then he is instructing us by example the priority that prayer must have in the life of each of us who is not God. In prayer, as in all things, Jesus teaches by example, and then says, no matter how busy we claim to be, Come, follow me. The second way Jesus educates us in the Trinitarian shape of Christian prayers through his own prayers recorded in sacred scripture, which manifested a quantum leap over the way of prayer faithful Jews would have been taught in Old Testament times. Jesus revealed that prayer was to be filial, the prayer of a beloved son or daughter to a father who loves his child with great affection. The Old Testament mentality, God was regarded as so awesome, transcendent, and distant that the great intimacy and loving reciprocity that God desires to have with us was not always apparent. Jesus came to reveal the Father's face and to help us turn to him as beloved children. We see this in the prayers of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospel. Every single one features an intimate, confident, loving address to a loving Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the clever and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will, he says on one occasion. On another, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me. On a third, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. In the garden, Father, not my will but yours be done. On the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The purpose of prayer is ultimately to seek the Father's will, to come to know it, embrace it, love it, and do it. Jesus shows us how, through prayer out of love for God, we come to love what God loves so much that his will becomes our will. That's the second thing we learn. The third way Jesus responds to the petition, Lord, teach us how to pray was by instructing the disciples and us the different virtues and characteristics of someone who prays well. He gives us two in this Sunday's gospel. First, he reinforces for us that to pray well, we have to pray as beloved children. Is there anyone among you, he asks, who if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead? Or if a child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, he said with a wink in his eye, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Just like a girl trusts that her earthly parents will not give her something poisonous when she asks for something good, so we're called to trust in our Heavenly Father that He will give us something even better. Jesus says God the Father will give the Holy Spirit. He will give Himself to those who ask Him. With all the Spirit's gifts, including the Holy Spirit's help to cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. The second disposition Jesus teaches us this Sunday is how to pray with perseverance. He uses the analogy of a next-door neighbor's banging on the door at night to borrow three loaves of bread to extend hospitality to a late-arriving guest. Jesus is teaching us that if a friend would eventually get out of bed to give what was requested, not because of goodness, but simply to get the neighbor off his back, how much more readily would the Father in heaven, who is good, give what is requested by those children whom he loves? The final way Jesus teaches us how to pray is by instructing us in what has been called the Lord's Prayer. Giving us the words of the Our Father, Jesus was doing far more than merely teaching us a magic formula to follow rigidly. We know this because the words of the Our Father we have in St. Luke's Gospel this Sunday are slightly different and briefer than the words found in St. Matthew, which we pray in the Rosary and at Mass. Jesus was teaching us, rather, about the types of things we should desire and the sequence of things we should pray for. We begin by focusing on God the Father in his holy name, his kingdom and his will, rather than our name, our fiefdom and our will. Then Jesus teaches us to turn to our needs, to trust in his providing material and spiritual food each day, to forgive us our sins, to strengthen us when tempted, and to deliver us from the evil one. Those seven things, God's holy name, kingdom and will, and then what we need to survive, forgiveness, strength and temptation, and deliverance from sin, evil, and the devil, are what Jesus teaches we should be regularly conversing with God the Father in the lifeblood of Christian life we call prayer. The culmination of Christian prayer is the Mass, which St. John Paul II said we need to learn to pray above all. Jesus' greatest prayer was the one he said from the upper room in the cross as he was preparing to save us, the prayer into which we enter live in time whenever we celebrate the liturgy. It's at Mass where we enter into Jesus' own filial petition to the Father, praying with perseverance from the rising of the sun to its setting, seeking the glorification of God's name, the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will. The Mass is where the Father gives us something far greater than our daily material bread, namely His Son, the true living bread, come down from heaven. It's where He strengthens us for the test, fortifies us to forgive, and bolsters us against the wiles of the evil one. And so as we prepare to dare to pray together as Jesus taught us this Sunday, let us ask God the Father to send the Holy Spirit to remind us of what Jesus taught and take us even further, so that we may pray the Mass together with Jesus, have our whole life turned into a continual extension of this prayer and become missionaries, helping the whole world to learn the art of prayer and enter deeply into the most consequential conversation a human being can ever have. Lord, teach us to pray, we ask, and he does. Let's get ready.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.